0: Hey there, what's going on? It's Chris Carino. This is the Voice of the Nets podcast. Coming here right from the heart of the summer. If you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, you're probably hot. It's it's hot everywhere right now, all over the world. Um, and we've just gotten through, speaking of hot, in Vegas, summer league action just wrapped up and Cam Thomas lit it up again. He was on fire. There's, there's no surprise there. And we're going to talk about it with a very special guest here today. His name's Jonathan Charks, T-J-A-R-K-S, Charks. Uh, Jonathan is a guy who, he's part of The Ringer and their podcast network, their NBA show. He does something called Upside High. So his specialty is young NBA developing players Following the guys when they're in college and, and working their way up, so he's a he's a great guy to talk to. He was in Vegas, he was courtside for a lot of those games, and he is a, a terrific guy to talk to on a number of NBA things with those young players. We'll talk about some of the bigger names. We'll talk about what he thought of the, the Nets' young players at summer league. And as I, I mentioned when we when we started this podcast, you know, I have a I have a a worldview that's a bit unique having something like muscular dystrophy would I go through? And I wanted to make sure I included some human interest stories here, some things that I was curious about and stories I wanted to help tell. And and Jonathan Charks, in, in addition to being a great MBA guy, um, has a human interest story as well, because he was diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer a couple of years ago. He revealed it in a story he wrote for The Ringer. I, I would recommend anyone Google this, The Long Night of the Soul by Jonathan Charks. And then another one was Does My Son Know You? And we'll talk about each one of those articles. And uh, the guy who works on this podcast with us, our, our sound guy, or engineer, uh, the guy who makes us all sound good and, and cracks the whip to make sure that all our guests sound good is Isaac Lee joining us right now. And Isaac was part of the ringer. Podcast Network. And I know you knew Jonathan or know Jonathan very well. Uh we just finished. We're we're recording this as, as an intro to the conversation that we just had. Uh Jonathan is a special guy and and it was it was a very poignant conversation that we just had. And I was curious to get your reaction from it and what you think as a way of teasing this for the folks, um, what you might think of telling everybody.
1: Yeah, I've known John about five years, uh, going back to when I worked at The Ringer. Um, you know, he's he's always a very honest guy. He doesn't pull punches. He's very candid, very... Um, I would say, like, when it comes to the human interest story, as you were talking about, uh, about his own struggles with getting uh, an early cancer diagnosis, right? He's 34 years old. And, uh, you know, he and I have had private conversations about it and he's spoken very publicly about it and he and I actually we have the same religious upbringing and uh, we talk a lot about that and uh, he gets into it and he doesn't I think you'd be surprised at how frank he, he is and how um, blunt he is and it's just kind of like a, like a fact of life and I, I look at that as as kind of inspirational just the way that he can talk about it and be willing to be open with it. Not just to his friends, not just to his family, but to the world. And just say, hey, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm dealing with. This is what my family has to go through. This is what my family has to deal with. And, you know, I personally have been inspired by his story. And also personally been very entertained by his his basketball opinions and his takes, you know, yeah. across the years. And uh, yeah, like I've, I feel like… Look, if you don't know his story, then you're going to learn something new today. If you already know his story, then you're going to get uh, some deeper insight today.
0: Yeah, and uh, it, it, it's funny because when people are facing things and it's like, you ever, you ever see the movie Bridges Spies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great film, right? And and Mark Rylance, who was nominated and won an Academy Award for it, he played the, the Russian spy who was on trial in the United States, and Tom Hanks is his, his lawyer. And he used to be so cool-headed you know Mark Rylance just sat there stoic and he's about to get sentenced as being found a spy and Tom Hanks turns to him and said you know aren't you worried and and he turned and he looked and he said he earnestly said you know would it help (laughs) and I I find that when you face things and and people are going to go through things in life it's like well you, you know if you spend your time worrying and and just consumed by the fear you're never going to be able to truly live in the time that you have left, and I think that's something that um, I take away from our conversation with Jonathan. You know, and uh, and I and I yeah, I hope I hope people enjoy it, uh, the basketball stuff and the life stuff. And Isaac, I appreciate you coming on and uh, and and giving us a few moments. And now you can go back to doing your working on this or your Ted Lasso podcast, whatever. <laughs> You mean, speaking of feel-good things. Yeah, speaking of feel-good things. Check out your Ted Lasso podcast. Give a give a give a give a plug for your Ted oh, Lasso. Sure.
1: Podcast. Yeah, I have uh my own podcast. It's called The Icebox. Box. It's my own little sandbox where I kind of explore a bunch of ideas, but I started it with uh with a series called The Book of Lasso, where again I'd re- mentioning my religious background, uh I'm studying Ted Lasso and rewatching it <laughs> as though it is a sacred text of sorts. And it's just like a good excuse. Honestly. I think you can take that away. Yeah, I think yeah. you can get that takeaway from it. Yeah. It's also just a good excuse to talk to some friends and be like, hey, listen, you like Ted Lasso. I like Ted Lasso. Let's talk yeah. like about Ted Lasso.
0: I already told you, I raised my hand. I, I won oh, in you're on in. Uh, you're season in, two, uh, She's a Rainbow episode. Yeah, you're which in. Which I love. It's like my favorite episode. All right, Isaac, I appreciate that, man. Thanks for making this uh, podcast always sound so great. That's Isaac Lee, my engineer. Um so here it is. It's Jonathan Sharks wrapping up Summer League and having a poignant conversation about his life's journey. It's Jonathan Sharks on The Voice of the Nets. Jonathan, I know Dallas, what is it up to? About 115 today? What do we got in Dallas?
2: We've been sitting at about 108 all week, and then it'll oh. pop into the 110s.
0: Wow. So so you you went... The Vegas, it was pretty much a, a seamless transition back home to Dallas. I just said we're going from one
2: sauna, we walked outside, go to the next sauna.
0: <laughs> and you were in Vegas for Summer League, and, and you host the, the, the Upside High, part of the, the Ringer NBA podcast network and all the shows they do, and sort of your milieu is... Is young players developing NBA talent, so uh, let's do the 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 Nesty plunge, right? Let's cool off, go right into Vegas and summer league here. Uh, it, it, I, I would imagine it's like your Super Bowl, con- considering what you kind of focus on with the Ringer, going to going out to summer league.
2: Yeah, I love it. I'm I'm a nut like that. I was I I legitimately this. I would just do this for a vacation. Like, there's nothing <laughs> I'd rather do. My wife came out with me, so I'm just watching games all day. Oh. Then they go out to dinner afterwards. And I'm like, for me, this is like my ideal vacation. And Some of my colleagues think I'm a nut, but the few, the few diehards, they get it.
0: And uh, you know, you're, we, we touched on it in the introduction about your personal story. And I think we're gonna, we're gonna wrap around to that in a little while. And I think it has something to, to do with what you just said about how you enjoy spending your time. And you you love watching NBA, and you love watching these young guys. Uh, what what stood out? For, let's jump right in. What stood out to you the most? What were the, your your biggest takeaways from this year's summer league, which featured as many good young players as I can remember in a while?
2: Oh, are we talking Nets takeaways or just? We're talking any takeaways, uh, okay. anything.
0: And oh, then I mean we'll the, get, and then we'll then we'll revert back and get into the Nets a little bit. I
2: mean, because obviously Cam Thomas was the biggest story. I mean, summer league, all summer league. <laughs>
0: You wanna you wanna kiss up to the Net fans right now? We'll get into <laughs> Cam. We'll get into Cam and uh. Dayron Sharp is a guy that I want to talk about a little bit. But in, in general, though, because there's a lot of there, I feel like we're at a golden age of really good young talent in their first couple of years. Last year's draft was tremendous. I think this year's draft is gonna be much the same. And you got to see a lot of those guys in Vegas.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think you're exactly right. We were That was kind of the main thing we were talking about was all of a sudden there's a whole wave of really good young cores coming up because last year's draft was really strong. This top of this year's draft was really strong. I mean, the big standouts, it was definitely Paolo and Chet. I would say Paolo more because I had never seen him in person. And this is something sometimes it doesn't always come across on TV. Like with Paolo, just how big he is. You don't really because he's so smooth, and someone was even telling me there was this theory because he's, like, very proportional. Mm. You just kind of, your brain doesn't quite process when you're watching yeah. him on TV. This guy's 6'10", 250. Yeah. And you see it in person, you're like, holy cow. He's yeah. bigger than the centers, and he's moving so fast, and he's so skilled. That was for sure the biggest takeaway was just seeing his pure size.
0: Yeah, uh, as opposed to a guy like Chet Holmgren, who, who is so lanky and skinny, And, you know, he looks like he's about seven foot eight, even though he is over seven feet tall, but he just looks so much taller.
2: Yeah, his length, it's kind of, he's kind of, like you were saying, it's kind of the opposite. But what really stands out in these settings are like the very rare physical tools, because you're watching the whole league, like literally every team over a couple of days. So you're seeing the entire rookie class. And in a way, you're really seeing the best young 22-year-old basketball players in the world all assembled in one place. Yeah. And you're like, you're looking at this age group. Oh, wow. Look at this one guy, Chet. His arms are so long. There was a couple of times where I saw him, he'd get the ball off the backboard like he was playing volleyball. And it's yeah. just like, it's very unusual. So I would say for sure, Chet and Paolo. Unfortunately, I, I only watched Jade and for about five minutes and he got injured. So that was really disappointing. But I yeah. heard he was really remarkable as well when he was healthy.
0: And, you know, the Nets uh, had a guy, Jabari Smith, years ago. And now his son is uh, is Jabari Smith Jr. Jabari Smith Senior was a real character. I mean, uh, a big, skilled guy, but never had much of an NBA career. Uh, I always thought he'd make a good globetrotter because he had this huge really? personality and he had these skills, you know. So I was, I was shocked when all of a sudden I saw that his son was coming up in, at Auburn, and uh, he he seemed to be like Jabari Smith Jr. seemed to be the. The safe guy, you know, the guy that can't miss. He's six foot ten. He can shoot the three. I know he didn't shoot it well in Vegas, but from the eye test, what do you see out of a guy like Jabari Smith?
2: Okay, I got to ask. Though, like, I was pretty young for Jabari Smith Senior. What was his game like? What who did he play like? I don't really remember him as a player.
0: <laughs> Metal Ark Lemon, if you want. Like I said about the Globetrotter, he was <laughs> because he had this. Like, I tell the story about you know, just he was just a he was just a, a really good personality, a very good soul kind of guy um funny laughing all the time maybe not as tall as his son but he played center and you know could could handle it uh and could shoot it and but thought he could do more than he could you know like he was one of those guys it's like he thought he can he can play like Kevin Durant but he was sure. more it wasn't as skilled so you know his son is a little more ferocious and skilled and a little bigger uh but yeah I think he he was on a net team that was kind of like they were. They weren't down all the way yet. It was still Jason Kidd, and um, but he was a backup, and it, it wasn't. I had thought he was a pretty good player, but he just he just He was very raw and unrefined. But again, I thought he could have been a great, you know, in the high post with the bucket of confetti, or <laughs> you know, looking for you know, taking Washington Generals off the dribble. You know, well, every
2: big him. man has that dream when they're younger of <laughs> have been the perimeter player. And I thought it was really interesting with Jabari Smith Senior. and then Dave Holmgren, Shet's father, mm. who played college basketball in the eighties. And you kind of got this sense they were like, "We our games, we were kind of put in this box when we were mm. coming up. The game was different. We're not going to let our sons. We see where the game is going. We're going to make sure our sons have these perimeter skills." and are put in situations where they can use them. Like, we're not, it's kind of like, there's, it's kind of one of the big storylines of this draft too is how many players, I mean, you see in the NBA too, is this is really becoming a family business. It's all generational. Mm. Paolo's parents are both D1 athletes. Paolo's mother was one of the great women's players. Jaden Ivey, NFL receiver for a father, obviously his mom, Mom, Tony has been all the time. Notre Dame. I mean, that's just kind of how it goes now. It's, there's just, these guys are so big and fast and it makes sense and they're, their parents, they know the game. They know what needs to happen. And they're making sure their sons are ready. As far as Jabari Jr. goes, yeah, I, I always put him a different bucket than Paolo and Shet in terms of I always thought of him more as a complementary player. And I think that's why he wasn't as effective in summer league is because he needs guys to set him up. He's more of a pure shooter, come off screens, catch and shoot, one dribble. And so he's having to develop the off the dribble game, the playmaking game. And if, if you don't have those skills in summer league, then you're really not gonna shine because mm. obviously everyone in the summer league is trying to get their own buckets. It's a pretty much a it's a doggy dog world, which is why our net our guy in the Nets was so perfect for summer league. That's the perfect <laughs> setting for kill a cam.
0: And, and the perfect segue. Let's jump into the Nets since we're there. Uh Cam Thomas now two years in a row has had great summer leagues. And I thought last year was a harbinger of what was to come. I mean, we saw him make clutch buckets you know game winning shots in summer league got a chance to play last year with the nets with the injuries and and guys in and out of the lineup and he made a couple of game winners i mean he iced a game at the garden last year where he walks it up the floor uh trying to make it a two possession game pulls up from 28 feet drains it you know they they clinched the game it was a big comeback and it was like wow we saw all that stuff in vegas and now we're, we saw a lot more of it. And what I thought was really interesting was the last game the Nets played against the, the Celtics Summer League squad is I think he went out there with that mindset of I'm going to show everybody that I can make plays here. And I don't even know how many shots he took in the first half, but he had a bunch of assists and he was almost like showing like, hey, I can do other things besides score. But we know the, the guy is a bucket getter.
2: Yeah, Cam was one of my favorite players to scout. I guess it was two years ago now. At LSU. I always, because he knew what he was, as, as you said, like Cam, more than most young players, he knows who he is. He knows what his role is. And I think, I believe it was almost a record in terms of field goal attempts to assist when he was at LSU. <laughs> <laughs> he <ratio. laughs> <Yes. laughs> you
0: knows, as, as Steve Nash used to say to me all the time, he knows where the basket is.
2: Yes. And so, I mean, I think for him, His rookie year, like, you know, he's not going to be any and not going to have any lacking in confidence. Like, like that's never going to be an issue for him when he's out there for better or for worse. He's going to make things happen. And I just think year two for him is just, you know, learning the NBA, learning personnel. I think the biggest thing for him and for a lot of the young players in this team, and obviously there's a lot going on right now, but stability of roles is important too. I think that's really hard as a rookie when you're just being thrown in there when the lineups are always changing and your roles changing, yeah. it's hard enough to adjust to the NBA. But then, like if one week you're the eighth man, the next week you're the starting two guard. there's very different responsibilities, and I think that was probably a struggle for him. So I, I think the hope is that he can have a very defined role in year two and kind of flourish within that role. Because I think yeah. that's the key for young players.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the whole net team struggled with that last year, trying to, you know, get, you know, I think. They set a you know franchise record for the second year in a row with the amount of starting lineups. Um, you know between COVID and injuries and you know things just were a wreck and guys could never really get their know what their roles were. Um, I, I look at Cam, you know, in that I used to say this about D'Angelo Russell. Sometimes you know I almost saw more of that um, sixth man. You know, come off the bench just just. Go get buckets. Like, don't worry about getting other guys involved. Be that Jamal Crawford-type player where you just come in and light it up. You know, and I, I maybe see that role for Cam down the road in the NBA. I don't know. I don't know if he's an everyday, rely on him as you're starting to. Um, could be. I think it comes down probably to the defensive end, right? I mean, I think that when, when you talk about coaches' trust, it usually comes from what you could do on the defensive end. That's why a guy like Kessler Edwards uh, got more of a role with the Nets last year because I think the coaches trusted him to make the right decisions, not offensively, but defensively. And I think even when you watch Kessler in the, in the, in the summer league, it's like you were pointing out before, guys are just in that element of going out and scoring. Kess is like a guy that does a little bit of everything and he's solid. And maybe it didn't jump off the page in the summer league, but it's kind of like the kind of guy that coaches trust.
2: For sure. I mean, there's definitely a difference. It's way more... I remember talking to someone, and was, he was saying, this is like watching the most high-level pickup in Summer League.
0: Yeah. And
2: like you're just watching these guys go up and down. There's not really stakes. And he was telling me he kind of enjoyed it more because like you're just play, it's just pure basketball. And like the game's over. You go on with your day. It's no big deal. <laughs> but definitely a guy like Kessler is going to do better in a more structured environment. And go back to Cam. Yeah, it's locking in on defense. That's the key to maintain a starting job. I, I kind of I always I thought of him kind of coming in as somewhere between Buddy Heald and Jordan Clarkson. Mm. And then if you look at both those guys, Buddy Heald's been a starter, but he's never really held down a starting job. He's always been in and out because of his defense. Yeah. Because either if you're either you're the primary option and we're gonna cover for you on defense, or you're a secondary and you've got to be locked in on D. So mm. if Cam if Cam can't be locked in on D and he is a little undersized That means that puts him to primary off the bench six man.
0: Yeah. And he can, and you know, in that role, you can flourish. Another guy that we brought him up before in in talking about the Nets summer league squad is a guy that I'm really, I'm really excited about what he might be able to bring is De'Ron Sharp. I mean, I, I have a friend of mine who's, you know, a really good basketball guy would text me during games last year, like man, Dayron Sharp's going to be the best big on that team. You know, I know nothing against Nick Claxton, but, you know, I, I, I love Claxton and his energy and everything. Dayron can do a lot. I mean, he can shoot the three we saw in the summer league. I don't know if necessarily he's going to be a sharp shooting Kyle Korver, three, three shooter, but um, he's got a real feel and he's got good hands and he's just a natural born rebounder. What would you take away when you see Dayron out there?
2: Sharp is interesting. I kind of wish he had stayed in school two years ago because Mm -hmm. then he could have had a really big role and flourished within that and not be able to play 30, been a featured player. You look at Walker Kessler, who Sharp was playing with at UNC. He stays as a sophomore. He goes to Auburn. I believe he wins National Defensive Player of the Year or if he didn't win it, he was one of the top two or three. Yeah. And he ended up boosting his draft stock a lot. And I think Sharp, like all these young guys, needs to play. And then it's a matter of once you're on the floor, then we can find ways to utilize your skills. But first you got to get on the floor. And then for Sharp, the challenge is he is very skilled offensively. It's how can we put you in a defensive system that allows you to be out here? And are we going to move our defensive system to maximize you? Because mm-hmm. when you're a center, it's defense first is unless yeah. you're Nikola Jokic and you're a center, you're playing defense first. You're, like a guy like Cam, we can hide you on the perimeter pretty easily. But if you're a center, it's all about defense. And so my thing with Dayron has always been how much is he gonna move his feet? How much can he protect the rim? And it's hard because it's hard, you don't, I don't get to watch him a ton. I mean, obviously his minutes are up and down. So I'm not totally sure where he falls on that. But I think those are the main two things is if he can survive defensively, then he can use the rest of his skill set to help the team on offense.
0: And, and being able to guard multiple positions from the center position has become uh, something that's really important. The way these teams defend pick and roll, a guy like Nick Claxton can get out and can keep can keep guards in front of him. You know, you're not getting exposed that way. And then he could still drop back and protect the rim. You know, the, that's that seems to be, it's it's, you know, people talk about going small at the center position. It's really not, so much from a smaller size. It's like a quickness kind of thing. It's a dexterity kind of thing. Can you can you keep guards in front of you?
2: I mean, you look at the conference finals this year, right? Yeah. So Dallas, Maxi Kleba, Dwight Powell. They even played Dorian smith et cetera. Golden yeah. State, Kevon Looney, Draymond Green. Um, Miami, Bam Adebayo, and then Boston, Time Lord, Al Horford. These are all yeah. smaller centers who can move in space and make quick decisions. And that's really... That's the game with the highest level. You're right. It's like small ball itself. Just putting a 6'7 guy there doesn't mean to do anything. But they've got to have a certain skill set that teams are looking
0: for. Yeah. And even you mentioned Time Lord, Robert Williams. I mean, he's not more than 6'9". But his his he plays so much bigger. And his timing. You know, and he can, he can sit back and play at the rim. Play drop. But then he could also, you know, get out and, and guard guards and guard smaller players
2: that's Um, defensive flexibility that's everything now
0: yeah and 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 two-way guys i mean that's just can you can you contribute on both ends of the floor i remember you know in that nets boston series uh this year which was a i i know it sounds like i'm being homerish but it was a little closer than a four-game sweep might necessarily be every game was really came down to a couple of possessions in the fourth quarter um because but, but the problem was And I talked about this with Brian Scalabrini on a podcast earlier. It was like, the Celtics don't have to make a lot of decisions. They can just put guys on the floor that play both ends. They can shoot the three. I mean, Robert Williams is not a three-point shooter, but you you know the guys that can play. And you don't have to make a decision between an offensive guy like Cam Thomas or a defensive-minded player. Or a three-point shooter, or a defensive-minded player, and that's the way the league is kind of going. Six, seven, six, eight, six, six guys that can shoot the three, and at the same time can defend, and then you just you don't have to make a lot of decisions as from a coaching standpoint.
2: For sure. I mean, I thought in that series is the perimeter size. When you yeah. don't have that perimeter size, you're always kind of fighting uphill. I remember like Jalen Brown was getting guarded by like six-two, six-three guys, and that's just just it's just not going to work.
0: Yeah. And you needed those guys to get some offense. And, you know, so it's it's one or the other. You pick your poison, whereas the Celtics were like, no, here's our team. Go out there. Well, I mean, um, it's funny,
2: right? Pick your poison, like, either way. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the expression kind of says itself.
0: Um, John, you know, it, it, in terms of when you're watching these, these summer league games, though, and you're – can you really evaluate – like, you said it's like a big pickup game. Um are there any examples of guys that you said, hey, this guy was, maybe I he didn't really show what he can do in summer league, but ended up being a really good player or vice versa. This guy was awesome in summer league, but it really didn't translate to the NBA. I would imagine you can get fooled a little bit because of the nature of those summer league games. For sure. I I always say it was summer league. It's, a, it's two
2: weeks of confirmation bias. Hmm. So, if you already like a guy and he plays well in summer league, it's like, well, this is great. I mean, look at him play well. But if you do, but if he plays poorly, you just say, Oh, it's just summer league. Like, don't <laughs> worry about yeah, it. Exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, you could, you could, you can you can process it. You can sell it any way you like. It's true. I you think know? for
2: me, what I try to use summer league for is just to get eyes and just to see their size and speed. So like I'm barely even watching the game. I'm just watching individual players and I'm saying, how are they moving? in traffic? How are they making decisions? I'm just trying to lock in on them and just kind of put in my mental index. Like how fast is this guy? Really? How big is this guy? Really? My favorite parlor game in summer league. I spent half the time that how tall is he? And like yeah. we're just is he six 64 and it's like this endless parlor game of guessing
0: heights and weights. Yeah, that that's still, yeah. There, there's still a lot of times you look at guys listed heights and go, "Oh, I don't, sure. know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that one." But speaking of, who's the the, the guy, the, the the French kid that next year is going to be the big prize, uh, Wenyama? Mhm. Um he's out in France. He's probably going to be the number one pick right now, right? I mean, he's looking like the guy that everybody's focused on and yet I think I saw a picture of him next to Chet Holmgren, and I think he was taller.
2: He's for sure taller than Chet. They played that's crazy. They played at the U nineteen championship game last year, which is an amazing game looking back on it. You had Chet versus Victor. US pulled it out in the end. Victor was at least seven foot three. If Chet's seven foot that's the other thing, it's always a reference point. Okay, if Chet's seven foot one, yeah. then Victor's gotta be at least seven foot three. That's that's what you're doing half the time. It's like, do I know this guy's height? Then I'm gonna try to guess this guy's height.
0: And we like Kevin Garnett all those years, never, he was definitely seven foot, but never wanted to be listed at seven foot because he For didn't sure. want to be seen as a center. Right. And been I other- think
2: there are uh, other players on your roster who have that same thought process. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes. Kevin Durant, <laughs> we could say. It. Um, hey, let's, let's, let's make a, let's make a big right turn here or left turn, wherever you want to call it here. Jonathan Sharks. Um, and you, you obviously that we're you, with the ringer. And Upside High and the Ringer Podcast Network and the NBA show for them. And you do an awesome job. People, definitely NBA folks, need to check it out. Um, y- y- you know, a couple of years ago, you wrote a piece for the Ringer where you talked about your cancer diagnosis. Um, a Ewing's-like sarcoma that's very rare uh, and, and, and can be deadly. And this is something you talked about in an article called The Long Night of the Soul. And then you followed it up with another article uh, called Does My Son Know You? And I'd love to get into both of those things. Um, first, your uh, initial diagnosis. Uh, where are you now? And, you know, how are you feeling? And what is your, you know, have you learned more about, in, since you wrote The Long Night of the Soul, which I hope people will check out, have you learned more about your condition?
2: Okay. Yeah. I guess, so I guess I'll just say up the top, yeah, I was diagnosed with the stage four Ewing's-like sarcoma last April. Um, Unfortunately, when when they put it into, they'll say a disease either curable or treatable. So mine is only treatable. And what that means is given the current state of medicine, there's no medical way to cure this disease as far as the doctors know. So, they all they can do is try to extend my life as long as they can. So, it's a terminal diagnosis. That was last year. Um, I don't, we don't know a ton more about it. Uh, It is very rare because what's what matters is less like you want to have enough data to make good decisions, like sample size. I'm sure everyone here lists this pod knows about that. The problem is there's just not a very big sample size. And like I'm part of the sample size now. So, maybe in five to 10 years, they'll have a bigger, a bigger sample size hmm. to have, be able to know more about it. But in terms of an individual case, it's hard to, you only learn, because like an individual case, anything can happen. So you only learn about disease when you have enough people in a cohort to yeah. give us a sample as representative. So in that sense, we don't know much more about it. Um, it has progressed over time. I'm, I'm no longer taking, basically the thought was always that my disease is that we want to use conventional medicine as long as we can and then we'll go into experimental stuff. And hopefully the longer the runway we have, the more time for the experimental stuff to kind of catch up. Well, right now I'm just on the experimental stuff. And so it's all kind of, we're all just playing it week by week, really. And that's the hard part yeah. too. That it always changes the challenges with it.
0: And it's hard when it's something that doesn't affect a lot of people because you know the general umbrella of cancer, it, it not necessarily what cures one cancer is going to cure another, and when I, I experienced this in muscular dystrophy, when less than a million people in the world have what I have, is there's not a lot of money in it for pharmaceutical companies or, you know, so it's, it's not, it, they don't have, there's not a lot of customers per se. So it becomes the kind of thing where it doesn't get the kind of attention it needs from a research standpoint. But um, I, I would imagine, you know, hearing that, in 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 the in the story you wrote the long Night of the soul, which was kind sort of a play on the dark night of the soul the the, the poem right I think you were which is sort of it describes an existential crisis and how you kind of change your the way you feel about life and 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 how you look at the world um, I'm sure it, this is this is a complex topic, but it, how has it changed the way You go about your everyday life.
2: Ooh, man, that is a, that is a, (laughs) there's a lot to that. Uh, I think, I guess I'll start with, yeah, it's just the idea of when you're actually forced to face your own mortality, it's kind of puts you on a spot where it's just, it's very easy. So I'm a Christian and it's very easy to kind of slip service to all the different dogmas of Christian theology, which I still believe in, but it's like, Okay, do you really believe this? Because now you're actually gonna die, and I think, especially in our society, we're so removed from death. Yeah, I mean, I'm 34. Like, I never thought about it. Like, oh, I'll deal with that when I'm 70. You know, just you just don't. It's just natural, I suppose. I think it is, anyways. And especially, I think in our society where death is so removed, it's in hospitals, it's in nursing homes. We don't see it day to day, really. You know, you just don't. And then people are living longer. They're healthier. And like the death is just pushed further and further away. And you just kind of ignore it. You don't think about it. But then at a certain point in everyone's life, you're just forced to confront, I'm really going to die. Like, and it's, it's one of those things, as I was saying, everyone knows that, but you don't really know it until you're there. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I feel like I'm lucky in that I was given a timeline. I'm going to die. What am I going to do? How am I going to live my life? What does that mean for my life, for my family? Whereas most people, my age, if they're going to pass away, it's usually a sudden thing, right? Where it's just car accident, plane crash. yeah, No, but for me it's, and I think it's like a very, I would say this last year and a half has just been a very slow process of getting my mind around that fact and trying to just like deal with it. Cause it's like, it's the ultimate question. I think everyone has to deal with this, obviously.
0: It's like the kind of thing too, where people think when you're faced with mortality that every day is going to be, well, I'm going to go, I've got to go uh, jump out of airplanes and <laughs> climb, the, climb a mountain or, you know, or, or get lost in a, in, on a beach or, you know, like you, but you have to, the thing that, in any, any anybody going through any kind of chronic disease or anything that's life-threatening, it's like your day-to-day life goes on. You know you can't live like there's no tomorrow because you know that you've got to plan for things and you've got so what i guess my question would be to you is um is it is it big moments that you're that you that you seek or are you just paying closer attention to the to the little things you know the time with your son, the time with your wife, the time doing this talking talking hoops, going to Vegas, going back to our what you said earlier about. You know, this is what I love to do, going to Vegas and watching hoops. Like, it doesn't have to be climbing Mount Kilimanjaro to live. It could be, well, no, I really love, I found something that I really love to do. And if I only have a finite time left, this is the stuff that I want to do.
2: Yeah, it's funny because you're right. There's like this popular image of the bucket list. Hmm. Oh, you got six months to live. I got to go to my bucket list. But number one, if someone tells you you have six months to live, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro is probably out.
0: Your body probably (laughs) can't handle doing something like that. Yeah, you're probably right. You're probably
2: right. (laughs) That was the most frustrating thing for me at first. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Is because, yeah, I'm thinking I want to do all this stuff. Like, I don't know how much time I have left, but I'm having to accept my physical limitations. And that was a really, really hard part of the process for me. was like, okay, no… I can't, and I didn't want to do it. Like, I wanted to still be able to wake up when I used to wake up. I wanted to still be able, I like, I would plan out my day. I'm going to do these six things. Like, no, I can't do that anymore. I can only do three of those things. And I think that's, and you're right, it's like time. Like, what is really important to me? And it is the small things. It's the small things with your family. And it's like, what do I really love and enjoy? And how can I best use that time? And a lot of times too, you end up like beating yourself up. You're like, that I have to be on Twitter right there, like I, I, I only have six months. That Twitter time was not very useful. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> it seems like a waste of time, right? But you got, but so well,
2: you're, like, well, you're say, doing like, what
0: you love, right? I mean, you're doing the things that you know being a being part of the Ringer and, and the NBA Show, and I mean, this is what you had worked your whole life for, right? For sure, and that's why, like. I took a time. I took some time off from
2: work a couple of times, but then I just kept coming back because I said, "This is what I love to do." I remember, so I I took some time off work right around March Madness, and then I find myself calling my partner on the podcast to talk about what happened. <laughs> it's like I'm already doing this anyways. I still want to watch this. There's no reason to not just do it. Yeah. And in that sense, I feel very blessed. I feel very, very blessed that I'm. I have the kind of job that I would still want to do. And I yeah, think I, I try not to. Take that for granted.
0: I think I think there's a term like Dharma in in um, in sort of where you say, like, if you won the lottery, would you still do what you're doing? And uh, my wife always joke with me, like, if you if we ever hit the lottery, you probably would still keep your job. I'm like, yeah, why well, I'd still want to go call NBA games. Like, I, I don't know why I would wanna are you gonna punish me if I win the lottery? I'm not allowed to do that anymore. You know, like those that's something so and I think. I think um, facing your mortality is also like that, you know, gives you this, all right, you really, you really look at it and say, what is it that I want to, how do I, how do I want to spend my time? You know, and that's what, and and I, and I, and I, and I guess that's what you're doing right now, but there's a practical day to day nature about what you're going through that, that, you know, the days do go on.
2: For sure. And there was definitely moments where I'm like, oh, I have to spend all this time so wisely. I have to spend this meaningful time with my son every day. He's one and a half years old. (laughs) There's only so much we can do in this time. And I still have other, I have time for other things. My wife still has to work. Right. So it's like, there's time for me to do other things. Like, yeah, it's like, sometimes you get so caught up in like, what's quote unquote meaningful, but it's like, what's meaningful is doing things you enjoy blessing other people Hang out with your friends, your coworkers, that's very meaningful. I think, and I think that's probably the biggest thing. Okay, so now I'm getting to the feel of this. So I think one thing that happened for me, okay, when, when your time, when you know that, okay, time is running short on earth, the first thing you, I, I remember thinking this a lot lately, it's like, it goes by so fast. You don't think of it in the moment, but it goes by so fast. And I think back, I'm like, man, I think back to my childhood, school, getting out of college, working, meeting my wife, having a family. And I look back now, I'm like, God, that all went by so fast. You know, they always say at the NFL, they say it's not for long. Hmm. Life is that way too. And I think, and and even though I'm so young, I think even if you're older, you have the same feeling because the older you get, the faster it goes, right? Time just starts to speed up. And so you're like... If I'm only here for this amount of time, like what's really meaningful? And then it's just like, I think of it sometimes like this. I'm like, I'm 34. 34 years from now, what's going to be meaningful? It's like, it's going to be the relationships I had. Those are going to be the people who still remember me as my wife and my son, my friends. And it's like, how can I invest in those people with the time I have? Because that's what's really meaningful. Everything else just kind of goes. Like you think about it like, so I was born in 1987. And you think about how many people who died in 1987, do you even remember in 2022? Very few, right? Like it's just not how it goes. Like the world goes on, time goes on, life goes on. But it's like those people who died then, who remembers them as their kids, their family, their friends, how they impacted those people in their lives. They still, That's where you're so remembered.
0: You wrote an article for The Ringer called, Does My Son Know You? And I think that what you what you're talking about now is what you kind of cover there is that, um, the thing that you had learned. Uh, your your father had passed away when you were young, and he had Parkinson's when you were around six, and he passed away when you were twelve. And you and you said that you know you saw people come to the, the memorial, the funeral, and and you didn't really know them, very well, and, and now your time is with your son. You mentioned being so young. And you don't know how much time you have with him left, but you want to invest in the people and your relationships that can be in his life so that the people that knew you and that loved you will be around for him. And I and I thought that was an incredibly poignant piece that you wrote that that could have talked about what you're talking about now. And I thought that line about investing in other people so they can be there for him was really impactful.
2: Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. And in case my mic, uh, my dad, get, he got, it, the illness turned when I was 12. He passed away when I was 21. So just in case. So oh, like, okay, yeah. The, Richard, okay. But anyway, so yeah, like the point of that when I was, and especially with my dad, cause he was sick for so long. And I think one thing I learned growing up is that my dad had a lot of friends when he was healthy and it just, it happened very, very slowly that as he got sicker, we started seeing them less. And then I just, as I kind of talked about, and then when you're at the funeral, it's like, What do you need? I'm like, like, I don't, I have not talked to you in 10 years. Like, I don't, at this point don't need much from you. I don't even, I don't know you. And I think, and I was kind of getting into the piece too, I think is the way our society is set up, it's very hard to find community to be part of something bigger than yourself. I think we all have that in school and to a lesser extent work, but that's so tied into, well, you're only in school for so long and work, you never know. Right. Anything can happen with that. And you lose those touch points, it's just easy to fall off. There's no way to, peep. there's no like real intuitive way to stay connected. And I think that was so important for me and my wife. That's why we're very involved in church. It's like, okay, these are people, like we see them every week. My son sees them every week. My son sees their kids every week. And it's like, my thought is right now, I've got to plug in as much as I can. I've got to like, my son's got to know these people now so that they can be there for him as he gets older. Mm. And I think that's like, that's kind of the great tragedy of our way of life, I think as Americans is that most people, I, ca- I call it in the piece relational insurance, is that we don't have that. Mm. And it's like, for me, and I was kind of talking about how like most people my age who pass away, it's because of something sudden, right? And that's the reality is we, no, none of us knows when our time is going to end. And when you get diagnosed like this, And they say, okay, is your insurance set up? Like, what's your medical insurance? What's your life insurance? Is your estate. Like, let's get a lawyer. And all that stuff's important financially, obviously. But it's like, you've got to make sure you have insurance for your family in case you aren't there relationally. And I think that's the one thing people don't have, right? There's, I saw some article where it was like, one in four Americans don't have a close friend. And it's like you can get by, and it's not the best way to live. But you can get by. Your family can get by without close friends. But if something happens to you, and it's just your wife and your kid, you're not going to make it without people around you, yeah. around them.
0: There's when you when you when you get when you get an illness or some kind of condition. I know I've experienced this too. There's a little bit of you get a little bit of isolation, you know, because um, whether or not you don't feel well and you can't socialize like you once did or if you're in a wheelchair you can't people don't think about i can't go over people's houses because i can't get in the house you know like it becomes isolating at times you avoid things because of your illness and um but it's important and i think if people listen to this and they know someone who's going through things like this and, and a lot of times people are hesitant to ask for help or to be involved and it's like no like you reach out to those people and become part of their lives and and see what they need and and talk to those people and and try not to you know again invest in that relationship it goes both ways don't be afraid of it um there was a did you ever see the show Council of Dads
2: no on that there was a
0: there was a show a few years ago on NBC it only lasted 1 year um, it didn't renew it for a second year, but I had actually watched it. Uh, I think I got hooked on it because of the commercials or like during This Is Us or something. And I was watching that. And it was a, a very similar story to your own, where it was a, a man who was, it was based on a novel, I think. And he was in the, the restaurant business and he was diagnosed with cancer. He knew it was terminal. And he, he assembled this council of dads There were three other friends of his that he sort of said they had made them make a promise to fulfill certain things that a dad would do when his, uh, when his time was up. And he wanted that when I pass on, I want you guys to be around. And they, the show picks up after the father has already passed and there's these three guys and they're just always around, you know, they're there, they had a bunch of kids and they're just always there to take them to little league games and teach them how to ride a bike. And, you know, like it was just, a, it was very similar to what you talk about in, in terms of while you're alive, investing in people who will then be there because they want to be. You know, like I've always said, even when I went through what I was going through, I've gotten a lot of help and a lot of people are there in my life. And when I started a foundation, so many people came forward, want to help. And I like to think it's because of the way I treated people before I was, you know, had this condition. And when I need help, it's there. And I think you probably, when you're facing mortality, you think more about that, I guess is what we're saying.
2: Well, first off, this is amazing. I had never heard of this show. I was like, I got to watch this. This is yeah. unbelievable. It's like your, like your like story, my, this, right? Golly. <laughs> wow. And yeah, there's a book, too. I got to read this book. He has bone can. Oh, my God. I got to talk to this guy. Geez, Louise.
0: Yeah. yeah this place so, in Savannah, Georgia, I think, is where they, they base the show.
2: Yeah. Rare Bone Cancer, which he made a full recovery. My goodness. Okay. Mm. I'm going to have to watch this show. So it's a good show like on its own. Is it a comedy or is it kind of in between? Uh,
0: No. Like, you know, a a drama, but you know, feel good by the end. So kind of like Parenthood, that kind of show? A
2: little bit. Yeah.
0: Uh, A little. I think they were going for the This Is Us vibe if you've ever heard of that show. I've seen Uh, This Is
2: Us, but that show is a little too intense for me. There's always- (laughs) pushing the
0: pedal. You got uh, your own stuff going on. You don't need to have so much human emotion <laughs> right on TV.
2: Yeah, I think kind of what you were saying and um, and I believe this is as a Christian, Jesus said like, what you do for the least of us, you did for me. And it, it, it's so different for me now because when I was healthy, I never felt like the least of us. You know, I always looked at it like, I got to help because I have the ability. And that's true, but it's like, it hits so much deeper when you're the one who needs help, when you're the one who can't do it on your own. Yeah, and it's those its those small acts of kindness that are just so meaningful. Yeah, and, I, and what you were saying is like people, a lot of times, oh, I don't want to impose. They'll say that. Like, I don't want to impose on this. I want to give them his space. Yeah. But it's like, no. no, I'd rather hear from people. Like, if I know you, I want to hear from you. And it's yeah. like, I want to… Don't, yeah, don't have that attitude. Where I, don't want, I don't want to impose Is like the worst thought you can have. Like, if you're put. like, trust me, there's not been anyone who has like pushed too hard with me, right? But like, God, I don't want to hear from this person anymore. I don't want to be cared for or loved. No. <laughs> this doesn't exist.
0: <laughs> I even said, I even thought about when I asked you to come on the, we asked you to come on the podcast. I'm like, you know, you do know, you'd be like, well, I don't want to take the guy's time. No, this is what you, this is like living for you, right? Talking hoops and, and being a broadcaster and being in the media, I know you did it. It was it was a hard, you know, you, you had to you had a fight through. You were at Dallas, the Mavericks, for a while. Um, you got where you wanted to be. So this is this is it. This is living, right? I mean, not necessarily. Maybe sitting on a Zoom with me is living, but but it's living. <laughs> well, don't you know? sell yourself
2: short, voice <laughs> of the Nets. I mean, how how big is that?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well uh, were you part of it? So so you did your time with the uh, the Dallas Mavericks media. And it's probably why I know we we probably crossed paths at some point in that along that line. Um, so that meant you probably got to do uh, the Mark Cuban um, treadmill press conference. Yes, have I that? have
2: certainly done the Mark Cuban treadmill press conference. No <laughs> question. <laughs> it's a very unique experience. I don't think there's any other. He's the only person I've ever interviewed working out, and that creates a zone dynamic. I, I always, think- I always joke that. When I was on the beat, it was like the years where they had Monte Ellis and Harrison Barnes and Chandler Parsons. Then I got hired by the ringer go national and Luca comes. Mm. It's there, like, uh, I was at every game of the Harrison Barnes era. <laughs> I hadn't, I wasn't married, I didn't have any kids. Then Luca <laughs> comes, I'm like barely making it to like once a month. It's just like, ah, what are the, the timing of these things.
0: Timing, light, everything's about timing. Uh, speaking of timing, I know I got to let you run here, Jonathan. I really appreciate you uh, being so candid and talking about that. I I. I feel like that, um, I, I've always said, I've had this conversation with other people that go through difficult times. And it's like, we wish we could have learned all this stuff in a book without going <laughs> through it. Um, <laughs> you know, because you do learn things and it, it does give you a perspective that others don't, don't get. But hopefully people that aren't going through it and maybe hope to God, you, you know, people never have to go through stuff. Um, but listening to conversations like this Is kind of like learning it a little bit from a podcast or a book rather than than having to go through it. But I I really thank you for your candor and your insight on the Summer League. And I I really had a great time talking to you. Thank you so much.
2: Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And yeah, that for me is like the ability to talk about this stuff is like one of the redeeming parts of it, which i'm always trying to find redeeming parts of it because it can be very hard sometimes to find them but it's like this is one of the big ones and so i appreciate the opportunity to talk about this stuff
0: we'll do it again sometime thanks for sure sure. all right appreciate it man thank you all right my thanks to jonathan sharks i hope you enjoyed that conversation uh and got a lot out of it both from a basketball perspective and from a life perspective Really enjoyed talking to him. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. I want to thank Tom Dowd, our producer, Isaac Lee, our engineer. We continue with our summer shows. We've got some really good stuff coming up. Players, former players, coaches, things like that. So uh, keep it right here. Subscribe. Please give us a good rating if you enjoy it. That was, always goes a long way. Thanks so much. I'm Chris Carino. This is the Voice of the Nets.